You're listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. This is Justin Gary. My life has gone in many different directions. I've moved around quite a bit, and as I get older, some of those details and memories from past seasons of my life, they begin to fade a little bit. Until recently, my parents moved after living in the same house for almost 20 years. And during those 20 years, they had collected, collected so much memorabilia from our past. And so in the moving process, my mom began to downsize. She started sending my siblings and I boxes of stuff through the post office. And as we opened these boxes, box after box coming to our house, we found old awards and caps and gowns, photos, journals, videos we'd re- we had recorded in an era when the home video camera was still popular. And as I looked through all these things, I kept being a little confused. Is that really me? I don't remember all this, but it was me. That's me in that photo. That's me with that strange hairstyle. That's me who wrote that. That's me saying those things. Some of it kind of embarrassing. I don't remember it much, but that was me. Paul is writing to the Ephesians. And in chapter one, he eloquently told them all that they had in Christ Jesus. For example, they had every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. They were chosen, predestined, adopted. They had riches of his grace. They had obtained an inheritance. They have it pretty good. And in God's eyes, now that they're in Christ, they're pretty, pretty awesome. Well, there's a big jump though that takes place from chapter one to chapter two. Such a contrast. It's like a sudden blackout when you're in a brightly lit room or like strong feedback in the middle of a symphony through the, through the audio system or a fly in your soup something that totally turns you off. Something stops in the middle and says, what is this doing here? The info that Paul jumps to in the start of chapter two pulls them down from the magnificent views they had in chapter one, back down to the ground of who they were before they met Jesus. Let's take a look in Ephesians chapter two, beginning in verse one. In Ephesians two, verses one through three, we read, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others." Paul, we were having such a blessed time in chapter one. Why'd you have to go and ruin it by describing us that way? It's such a jump, in fact. The translators tried to soften it a bit. There at the beginning, it says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. The original text doesn't have, he made you alive. It just says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. In fact, the the he made alive doesn't show up again until verses four and five. And so the darkness of what Paul now tells them, they try to lighten up a bit by putting that glimmer of hope to say, hang in there. This is Paul's destination. He's going to remind you're alive, but let's go back into the deep, dark depths once again. Let's let the weight, though, of what Paul said sink in. He says, and you who were dead. In case you forgot, there was a time that you were dead. You see, chapter two in Ephesians is a reminder of where the Ephesians came from. Because as time goes on, we can get so used to the riches in Christ that we are part of, that we've inherited, that we forget where we came from and the awe of what Christ did. 
In chapter one, he laid out for us all the riches, all the glory, all the goodness, all the things we have in Christ that we don't even deserve. He wants to give them a reality check. The fact is we were dead. And there's tons of evidence to prove that we were dead. Just like boxes and boxes of stuff my mom sent from my past, there's boxes and boxes of evidence to show that they were dead. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all the same at the foot of the cross. We were dead before we met Jesus. When I lived on the missions field, we often got some strange requests sometimes from people from overseas. This one time I got contacted and I received an email and I wasn't sure if it was a spam email at first or if it was a scam email, but it was from an insurance company and they were wanting to do an insurance investigation. You see, in the course of this, one of their clients had actually been overseas in Slovenia and unexpectedly died when they were there. Now, the widow back in the United States was wanting to collect on the life insurance. But of course, as any good insurance company does, they want to investigate and verify and corroborate all the stories to make sure that they can really release the funds. Otherwise, they'll hold on to them. And so they needed someone on the ground in Slovenia to investigate the death of this American who had been overseas in Slovenia. They said that they often contacted missionaries in different places. One reason was to give them some support. They could earn a little bit of money through the investigation process, but also because they often knew the language and the customs and the people and could navigate better than some American getting on a plane, flying over there and doing the investigation for them. So I was in. My background is in broadcast journalism, so I'm thinking this is investigative reporting. It is time to hit the ground running. I'm going to investigate and find out if this guy is truly dead. And so I did. I started off at the hospital. I actually went to the morgue. I had no credentials, no business card or anything, but somehow I talked my way in there and was able to look at the record and see the death certificate with my own eyes. I went to the county office where they keep the death records. And again, I was able to produce some documentation. They were, sorry, they were able to give me documentation. I had no business card or credentials on my side. Talked my way in there and was able to get this. I went to place after place. I even ended up in the poor guy's village where he had been when he died and was able to find the grave and take photos to show that, yep, there is really a temporary gravestone there. And even went to that city hall at that place and was able to sit down with coffee with someone who even gave me more documentation. After a day or so of this little adventure of being this investigative reporter, I was able to write back to the insurance company and say, yes, there is an abundance of evidence. I can confirm this man is dead. Hopefully the widow then got her settlement after that. Paul, though, here in Ephesians chapter two says, regardless of who you are, regardless of who is reading verse one, you were dead. There is tons of evidence to prove it. The ways you thought, the ways you acted, the things you desired, the things you chose, the way you spoke, the way you walked. Before Christ, you were indeed dead. Now, in case anyone would doubt the evidence, Paul knew these particular people in Ephesians quite well. So he had plenty of firsthand evidence that they were dead in their sin. He had spent almost three years there in Ephesus. In fact, the longest they had spent in any of the places where he had planted or pastored churches. We read a number of different things in Acts chapter 19 about that time there. It says there in Acts 19 verse 10, all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Some of them had a past, and Paul knew them before they had a past. The magicians came and they burned all their books. They were involved in the occult. Paul had seen and known them before they came to know Christ. They were a a lot of idolaters there in the the town of Ephesus. Paul had persuaded so many, and he said, you know, these are 
these are not gods made with hands. And this trade that they had was in danger of falling into disrepute and Diana's temple will be despised. That's what the people were afraid of because the sale of idols was going down, all these idolaters. Also, many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds in Acts chapter 19, verse 18. When they came and got saved, they told Paul everything. They spilled their guts. Paul knew what they were like. They had confessed and told their deeds. And he's reminding them now in Ephesians chapter 2, in case they might have forgotten. Paul brings up some facts of their former dead life. In verse 1, Paul reminds them of their cause of death. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. That was the cause of their death. Trespasses. It's a sign that tells you don't walk across this property. Don't enter this room. Don't go here. You can't cross the line. When you trespass, you have stepped across a line that is clearly indicated for you. We've all done that. We know what we're not supposed to do, and yet we do it anyway. But not only were they dead in trespasses, they were also dead in sins. Sin, in the biblical term, it means missing the mark. It was kind of an archery terminology. When you would go and shoot your bow and arrow, you missed it completely. You missed the target. We often think that, well, you know what? We're good people. We might feel safe because we don't trespass like bad people do. I mean, we don't intentionally always go around and cross over the line, even though we know that we shouldn't. But sin that widens the audience because we've all sinned. So you he made alive who were dead in trespasses, whether you did it knowingly or in sins, just because you are a descendant of Adam and Eve, your sinful nature. Nobody is perfect. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, some might say, but I was born in the church where I've walked with Christ so long. But you know, we all find ourselves in verse one in our natural nature. If you volunteer a weekend in the nursery at church, you will remind yourself of the existence of your sinful nature. I remember I was five years old when I really discovered I was a sinner because I shoplifted because my mom would not buy me that bubble gum at the store. I stole it. My first crime didn't go on my record, though. We are all sinners, and it's pretty much evident from the moment that we're born. In verse two, Paul says that they once walked according to the course of the world. Have you ever been caught up in a mass of people? Maybe at a crowd after a concert lets out, well, I guess before coronavirus, a concert lets out or a play or or some um, assembly that you're at and all the people are going and you are caught up in a mass of people and you just have to move with them. There's no other way to go. Or you're trying to make a left turn out of a parking lot in some busy intersection and the cars are going in, in both directions in both ways and you can never do it. So you finally just put on your blinker and go right and go with track with traffic and make a U-turn down the road at some at some parking lot. There's no fighting it. Paul says that you once walked according to the course of the world. We were caught up. We were walking with the world. We weren't walking the way a Christian should walk. When he says there that we were caught up, the word there can mean meandered. It also has its root in a weather vane, that device that sometimes is on the roof of a building and it blows just wherever the wind is blowing. That's what he said. Before you were with Christ, you once walked according to the course of the world. You meandered. You were directionless. You had no clear direction, and you just kind of walked and wandered where you went. And you were also like a weather vane. Wherever the wind took you, you pointed in that direction. Whatever was enticing to your sinful nature, you went in that direction as well. We were caught up walking with the world. 
I remember being in sixth grade in social studies class, and we had a class called MAKOS. It was an attempt back in the 70s and 80s to teach courses like anthropology to 10-year-old kids. And it obviously didn't go over well because though thousands of schools in the 80s did it, it was eventually defunded. But I remember in Makos watching films, things like watching movies of Inuits in Alaska skinning caribou on the tundra and things like that, different cultures around the world. But I also, I remembered a lot, learning a lot about salmon in sixth grade in that Makos class. We had a whole unit on salmon. I lived on the island of Maui in sixth grade. There were no salmon to speak of around, but we learned a lot about salmon in that class. I guess in Makos, we were learning about the circle of life, all the way of from spawning to surviving. In the movies we watched, bears would stop by the streams and pick up a salmon for a snack. But what I remember most was the salmon going upstream against the current, fighting against that strong, crisp, cool mountain stream that was coming down from the snowmelt, full force as the snowmelt was happening. And those salmon would fight against the, against the current with all their might, their tails wiggling, their little fins going. And somehow in this power, they were able to make it up the stream a little bit. But every now and then in the film, some salmon wouldn't make it. In fact, once they spawned at the top of the stream, they would perish, they would die. And that dead fish, it would just flow right back downstream. No matter how hard it had pushed, no matter how much effort it had given, no matter how much fight it had in it to go upstream, when it was dead, it just went with the flow. That's the picture that we get here. You were dead. You just flowed with the world. There was no fighting it. You had no, even as much as your intention was to be a good person or to make better choices, you still sinned. We were powerless against sin. Even when we tried to be better, we fell again. That's something to remember in society today. As much as we want society to make moral choices and laws and to be on their best behavior, they can't. They're dead. They just go with the course of the world. According to verse 2, we were under the influence of a spirit. It says, you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Who's the prince of the power of the air? Who's the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience? It's the devil himself. He's a deceiver. He made things look good to you back in the day before you were born again that were not good for you, totally deceived you. He was a liar. He told you that you could make certain choices and there would be no consequences for them. Boy, was he wrong. He's a murderer. Things that we thought would make us alive actually brought death, even if that was just spiritually or to our hearts. That is the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. He's still around. He's the prince of the power of the air. We're no longer under his jurisdiction, but we're still living in that environment in which he has a lot of clout. We are exposed to him daily in our interactions just by being in this world. Later in the book of Ephesians in chapter six, we're gonna talk about spiritual warfare where he tells us to put on the full armor of God. Well, dealing with the enemy does not always involve that direct confrontation of being in a battle and spiritual warfare. It can be something more simple. I mean, think about the influences he has. Sometimes it's just things like bad dreams or lost keys when you're trying to get someplace, or the illness that affects you, or the cloud or fog or depression or anger that just kind of hangs over your head and just kind of ruins your day and keeps you from being on your game or really living for the Lord that day, or just the oppression of being light in a dark place. 
We are in the devil's territory. We are on his turf. And he harasses us for being here. Remember righteous Lot? Peter talked about him in 2 Peter chapter 2. It says, God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Lot tormented his righteous soul day and night just by being there. It's not that he was even engaging with them. They wore Lot down simply by him being in their environment. It's hard for us to live for God in this unrighteous world. And like bullies in the high school hallway, he taunts us all along the way. And the enemy is now working in the sons of disobedience too. Wow, what an assessment of the world that we live in today. Paul reminds us we live in a rebellious world that does not walk in the ways of God. Talk about peer pressure. Even though we're made alive, how tempting it is to walk in the old ways. Now, in Lot's case, we could have some discussion about whether Lot and his family should have been in Sodom and Gomorrah at all. But still, he's called righteous Lot. When Abraham intercedes, God does not consider, or sorry, God does consider Lot to be one of the righteous ones. And he spares him because he was showing him mercy before destroying that city. Lot was one of those he accounted to be righteous. It wasn't easy, though, living in Sodom and Gomorrah. It tore away at him. It tore away at his family. And so it does with us who are righteous, trying to live in this world that is under the influence of, of the prince of the power of the air. So to summarize, Paul reminds us of the three strikes we had against us before we met Jesus. First of all, our dead nature. And then number two, the influence of the world around us. And three, the enemy. How did we respond under all that? Well, verse three says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. It tells us here that we fulfilled desires, desires of the flesh and desires of the mind. We were just stuffing our faces. Imagine a buffet. I remember going to Las Vegas one time in college and the buffets, especially when you're a college guy, the buffets were awesome. All you could eat, you could stuff your faces. If you just wanted one bite of that pie and you decide you didn't want any more, you could push it on the side and you could go back and get more. All you can eat, even if it was just one bite. Well, that's the picture here, stuffing our faces. We fulfilled the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We just stuffed our carnal nature as much as we wanted. We were created as a triune entity, body, mind, and spirit. When we go back to the Garden of Eden, the Lord said to them, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. That trinity died. It was disrupted. In particular, the spirit died because that's where man was meant to commune with God. In my unsaved state, I am dead. And that results in the existence that we read about in verses one through three, just going with the course of the world, being under the influence of the enemy. In dead living, that's what we're subject to, unless a man is born again, just like it says in John chapter three. And that's why Jesus said that we needed to be born again, because when we are born again, the spirit comes back to life, which finally gives us a chance to fight against our old nature. In addition, Paul reminds us in verse 3 that we were by nature 
children of wrath. Wrath is anger that has been building up over a long period of time. And as God has watched us be defeated by sin and live according to sin, he's not pleased. And as time goes on, we were by nature children of wrath. God has stored up his wrath, and the Bible tells us that his wrath will be poured out upon the earth at some point. But right now we live in a season of grace where we have his mercy and we have the opportunity to repent. But before we came to know him, we were still under his wrath. We were by nature children of wrath. At this point, imagine the thoughts of the Ephesians as they read this letter. It's been a long time since they did some of those things. Their magic books that they used to use, the idols they used to worship, the dark things that they had told Paul, many of those things are long gone. They've been walking with Jesus. They're in the sanctification process. They're in chapter one of Ephesians, not in chapter two. But now we're coming up with this again. Why, Paul? Why are you bringing it up? It's healthy to get, to glance back from time to time, to look back at our old life before we knew Jesus Christ. As time moves on, we can become a little pious, so used to the things that Christ has imparted to us, the imparted righteousness, so accustomed to the life of Christ that we forget from where we came. It's a healthy humility to glance back and remember, wow, that used to be me. It's sort of like looking back at an old yearbook that your mom sends you or a family photo, and it can remind you of you were not always that cool. Remembering that we too, as sinners, are just saved by grace, it can really renew our perspective and restore our compassion for the world around us. To watch the news and be able to think, oh, we're on this side and they're on that, th that side, or to think, oh, Lord, call down fire from heaven, or to shake our fingers and turn our backs on this God-forsaken world, and like Jonah, to think, oh, they don't deserve it. That was the fault of the Pharisees, wasn't it? They thought that they were above the masses that they were truly the separate ones. But when Jesus came on the scene, he made sure to put them back in their place. Now that Paul has the Ephesians a bit uncomfortable and he's captured their attention, he's been showing the most unflattering photo of them, the most compromising transcript of their past actions, the most incriminating videos of their past behavior, he changes the focus. In verse four, he begins with, but God. But. It's a word of contrast. No matter who we were, let's cut to God now. When God showed up, everything changed. It didn't matter how dead we were or how stinky we were or how much we meandered or how much we were just like a weather vane or how much control the enemy had over our life, but God. The believer should often use the phrase found in verse four, but God. It's the filter with which we can view everything by faith. It's just who I was, but God entered my life. I felt like doing it, but God came and stopped me or rebuked me. I was born that way, but God made me a new creation. The devil tempted me to do it, but God showed me it was wrong and restored me. The world said it was okay, but God showed me a better way. It felt so natural, but God showed me my sinful nature is corrupt. We can't make excuses or remain where we were because God stepped in, but God. It should be a common thing in our vocabulary. 
When God is allowed to enter into the story, everything changes. God is the hero of our story. When he comes on the scene, it's like the good guys showing up at the right time in the movie. Or when the secret weapon is revealed and the tide of the battle changes in that, in that scene that we're watching. Everything pivots on those words, but God. Notice, it is but God and not God but. The world has the wrong phrase. They use it often. God but as they protest against God. God, but it's just who I am. God, but I feel like it. God, but I was born this way. God, but the devil made me do it. God, but the world says it's okay. God, but it feels so natural. Accusing God is not understanding or lacking compassion or lacking wisdom or being out of touch with reality or justifying and redefining and asserting that God is out of touch and has no authority or say in the matters at hand. God, but, that's a protest. That's part of the old nature. But God is a declaration of submission and victory and his authority in our lives. Paul continues in verses four through seven. He writes, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In verse 4, Paul quickly erases the horrible picture of us being dead and replaces it with the amazing picture of what God did and how different we are now as a result. Have you ever seen before and after pictures attributed to some amazing product or system or workout or self-discipline? The before picture and the after picture don't always reflect each other, but the after picture is always so much better. But God entering your life, entering your story... It makes all the difference. The before and the after picture look nothing alike. The verses declare three things about the God of the Bible. It says, God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, by grace you have been saved. Notice, mercy and love and grace. It takes all three to understand God. In the math equation, mercy plus love equals grace. That is a balanced equation. That's something unique about the God of the Bible. He's a wonderful equation of mercy and love and grace. Other gods and other faiths are missing one of those components, and the equation is not balanced. First of all, mercy. God is rich in mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. It implies escaping judgment that is deserved and getting away. God is merciful, not because he just closes a blind eye, though, but because another paid it. Jesus paid it for us. But we are introduced to the mercy of God early on in the Bible, long before Jesus came on the scene. The word there for mercy in the Old Testament is often the Hebrew word khan, C-H-E-N. It's a word in the Old Testament that's translated mercy, but it's also translated grace in some places. So in the Old Testament, it can be a little confusing as they kind of go back and forth with both these words. But the first time we see that word is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, which says, Noah found grace or mercy in the eyes of the Lord, because the word can be interchangeable. Noah, Noah found con, Noah found mercy, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
Remember what the world was like in Noah's day. The world was wicked. In fact, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth because man was continually sinning in his heart at all times. Now, Noah was not perfect, but Noah found grace or mercy in the eyes of the Lord. God gave mercy. God didn't give us what we deserved. Now, Noah was not perfect. He deserved to die as well. But he escaped the judgment that was deserved by all of mankind because God was merciful. Mercy rests in the one who gives it, not in the one who receives it. Now, number two, the God of the Bible is also loving. And this love is an unconditional love. It's God's agape love. No matter who you are and what you do, God will continue loving because it rests in the one who gives the love, not in the one who receives it. It's a favor that we have not yet earned. The first time we heard, find the word love in the Bible, it's the Hebrew word ahab. It's from Genesis chapter 22. Then he, God, said to Abraham, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham affectionately cared for his son. And yet in that test of God, he was willing to sacrifice his own son, his own son whom he loved. That story there, it's a picture of God the Father in his love for us, willing to sacrifice his own beloved son. And now he loves us unconditionally, just as he loved his own son, because God is a God of mercy, but God is also a God of love. But the equation is not complete. Paul mentions that not only is a God a God of mercy and a God of love, but he's also a God of grace. Grace, unmerited favor, nothing that we have earned or saved for or put a down payment on, nothing we scored high enough on or obtained credentials for. It's a free gift, a favor that is simply extended our way. And that is our God, a God of mercy and a God of love and a God of grace. A healthy church and a healthy believer emphasize and experience all three of them. Leave any one of them out and something is missing. It's not the right picture of Jesus. It's not the God of the Bible. If you leave out mercy and you forget that it cost Jesus, you lose sight of the seriousness of sin. If you leave out love and you just have a God who tolerates you and you respond in duty and not relationship, something is deeply lacking in that relationship. If you leave out grace and the fact that God saved you, but don't ask him for any more favors, people's relationships suffer. All three need to exist for a healthy view of God, for a healthy, healthy Christian live, for a healthy church and ministry, an equal emphasis and a healthy emphasis upon God's mercy, upon God's love, and upon God's grace. Looking back at who we were before Jesus, it's not necessarily a pretty picture. We were dead. We trespassed, knowingly rebellious. We sinned by our very nature. We were under the influence of the enemy. We did all those things and we don't necessarily want to bring it up again. But God, God who is merciful, God who is loving, God who is gracious, he made us alive again. And that new life then reflects back in chapter one of Ephesians of all the riches that we have in him. But it's good and healthy every now and then to come stand and look over the precipice, back into the chasm from which we came, to remember where we came from. 
That way we can turn and look to Jesus and remember all that he's saved us from. They say that diamonds shine brightest against the darkest background. That if you get a dark velvet and you hold that diamond up to it, you can see all the the beauty of it and even the imperfections. Well, God right now in Ephesians chapter 2 he put the back, the darkest background up there, the darkest thing you could find, which is our sinful past, that hopefully the light of chapter one and all that Jesus Christ has done for us would shine ever more brightly. There's an enemy though, and he wants us to live in the past. He wants us to live in the regret of the past, and he wants to consistently pull us back into the, the past. But Jesus Christ has set us free, a God who is merciful, a God who is loving, and a God who is gracious. And Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for pulling us from the kingdom of darkness and conveying us into the kingdom of the Son of your love. Thank you, Jesus, for your for your forgiveness, that as far as the east is from the west, so far you have removed our trespasses from us, that you no longer count them against us. Lord, we're willing to go back under and to look at the past just for a moment, Lord, to be able to reflect and to see all that you've taken us from. But Lord, now we declare the promise that says in Romans that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that we are in Christ Jesus, the old man has gone, the new has come, and we celebrate and rejoice in him and give you all the glory and praise. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.